0: From Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. 100 organizations urge President Biden to end the brinksmanship between Russia and the United States over Ukraine.
1: So much of what uh, we're seeing today simply reflects almost a willful determination not to learn from history because our policies now remind me very much of the policies of the European powers in 1914.
0: And our media critic John Jeter joins us to break down corporate media's part in beating the drums of war.
2: Why are we rattling our saber? It's a distraction from those issues that are really, we had another shooting yesterday. Uh, Minnesota, it might have been. You know, we're seeing this country come apart, and we're talking about what Russia is doing on its own territory. It's insanity.
0: Welcome to On the Ground, OnTheGroundShow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverum. With President Biden sending 3,000 American troops to Eastern Europe, placing another 8,500 on heightened alert and continuing to stock Ukraine with lethal weapons, 100 organizations sent a letter this week to Biden urging him to end the U.S. escalation of the dangerous tensions with Russia. The group said, quote, it is gravely irresponsible for the president to participate in brinksmanship between two nations that possess 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. End quote. At a news conference on Wednesday, Medea Benjamin, co founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, read for more of the letter signed by groups representing the peace, faith, veteran, medical, and scientific
3: communities. For the United States and Russia, the only sane course of action now is a commitment to genuine diplomacy with serious negotiations, not military escalation, which could easily spiral out of control to the point of pushing the world to the precipice of nuclear war. While both sides are to blame for causing this crisis, its roots are entangled in the failure of the US government to live up to its promise made in 1990 by then Secretary of State James Baker that NATO would not expand, quote, one inch to the east. Since 1999, NATO has expanded to include numerous countries, including some that border Russia. Rather than dismissing out of hand the Russian government's current insistence on a written guarantee that Ukraine would not become part of NATO, the U.S. government should agree to a long-term moratorium on any NATO expansion. Speakers
0: at the press conference also included the Nation Editorial Director Katrina Vandenhuvel who is president of the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord, Martin Fleck representing Physicians for Social Responsibility, and former U.S. Ambassador to Moscow, Jack F. Matlock Jr., who we will hear from after headlines. Groups including Shut Down D.C. and the Palm Collective want more of the money now going to militarism to go instead to families and communities. And on Monday, January 30th, they participated in an action through the streets of D.C. called A Spine for Biden, urging President Biden to shift priorities. Kevin Kramer of the Palm Collective spoke to News to Share.
2: If I could have my way, I would simply have him to protect women's rights. Just stop it all in the blood. You know what I'm saying? Invest, divest from the military and from the police and invest in being preemptive and creating care so we don't have to have the necessary policing or the police at all. Do the necessary things to provide universal health care. You can't tell me that you got money for wars. You you can't tell me that you can increase the military budget and people can't afford health care. That makes no sense. When the same money that's going to the... The same money that's being invested in the military just came out of the same people's pockets. They need health care. That makes no sense.
0: Now, a stripped down version of Biden's original domestic plan Build Back Better legislation is still stalled in Congress with the right wing of his own party calling for more concessions, such as means testing for the popular child tax credit while legislation is being pushed instead by Representative Gregory Meeks of New York to send $500 million in additional aid to Ukraine. A new report from the human rights organization Amnesty International designates Israel as an apartheid state defined as an institutionalized regime of oppression and domination by one racial group over another. The report documents massive seizures of Palestinian land and property, unlawful killings, forcible transfer, drastic movement restrictions, and the denial of nationality and citizenship to Palestinians as components of a system which amounts to apartheid under international law. This system is maintained by violations which Amnesty International found to constitute apartheid as a crime against humanity, as defined in the Rome Statute and Apartheid Convention. Amnesty International is calling on the International Criminal Court to consider the crime of apartheid in its current investigation, and calls on all states to exercise universal jurisdiction to bring perpetrators of apartheid crimes to justice. Amnesty is the third human rights organization to designate Israel an apartheid state. The report is posted at amnesty.org. Back here at home, human rights activists are working to free Leonard Peltier, the 77-year-old Native American freedom fighter who has been jailed for more than 46 years on charges that he killed two FBI agents. He has consistently maintained his innocence. He tested positive for COVID on February 1st at Coleman U.S. Federal Penitentiary in Florida. In Florida, The International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee is demanding that Peltier be transferred to a hospital to receive treatment for COVID and is urging President Biden to grant him clemency. Gene Roach, a member of the Cheyenne City Tribe in South Dakota, spoke at the press conference Tuesday, February 1st in Tampa, Florida. We want... Leonard in a hospital immediately? He has an aortic aneurysm? I mean, he's very high risk. He's a diabetic? Why does he have to be treated like a less than human? All the people that have dark skin, we know what we're talking about. And we're tired of it. We really are. We want this genocidal treatment of the double standards to quit. We want Leonard Peltier immediately released and we could get him some rightful hospital care. Can you please contact your tribal leaders, your congresspeople, Joe Biden? Okay, we're tired of it. We hear this? The colonization and genocide has to stop. A petition titled Leonard Peltier has COVID, 46 years in prison, hospitalized, and free him now is at change.org. The top prosecutor in Atlanta, Georgia, Fonnie Willis, who is investigating Trump for possible criminal interference in the 2020 presidential election, is asking the FBI to provide protection for a courthouse and government center there after Trump urged supporters to hold, quote, the biggest protest we've ever had, end quote, in places where he is being investigated, meaning Atlanta, New York and Washington, D.C., Trump made the comments at a rally on February 29th in Conroe, Texas, near Houston. Speaking for more than an hour, he referred to the investigations all headed by Black prosecutors as racist. That claim followed the statement made at a rally in January, during which he claimed that white people were being denied vaccines and treatments for COVID and that they had to get at the end of the line behind people of color. In making her request for increased security, Willis cited the January 6, 2020 attack on the U.S. Capitol, which Trump incited. The FBI also said Wednesday that they are investigating several bomb threats made against historically black colleges. Police in Florida received a threat against Bethune Cookman University in Daytona Beach. The caller claimed to be a member of the Adam Waffen neo Nazi group. And Black Lives Matter activists in Chicago may seek federal civil rights charges against police officer Jason Van Dyke, who shot and killed 17-year-old Laquan McDonald in 2014, but was just released this week after serving just over three years for the murder. Van Dyke shot McDonald 16 times, including as the teenager lay on the ground, was covered up by Chicago police and prosecutors who did not release body cam footage proving the murder until one year later. And in Georgia, the father and son convicted of the murder of Jagar Ahmad Arbery will not receive a plea deal they requested that would have allowed them to serve 30 years of their murder conviction and time for a hate crime conviction concurrently at a federal prison rather than at a state prison. Jury selection begins Monday, February 7th, for federal charges for hate crimes and for kidnapping. And finally, in DC, sanitation workers are organizing for safe working conditions and respect as essential workers. Thomas O'Rourke has more.
4: As the COVID pandemic continues to upend the lives of first responders throughout the country, union leaders representing sanitation workers in Washington, D.C., voice concerns about the dangers and risks their members face each day. Without proper protective gear against pandemic concerns, as well as the related and growing issue of cleaning up at homeless encampments. WPFW's Joni Eisenberg recently spoke to Robert Hollingsworth, Executive Director of AFSCME District Council 20, along with Kevin Pogue, President of ASME Local 2091, representing D.C. sanitation workers. You have to realize, this is one of the most hazardous jobs on the planet. In any
5: country, any nation that you look into, if you look at What the most dangerous jobs are, you will see sanitation work near the top of the list. My name is Kevin Poles. I'm uh, the president of Local 2091, me, Local 2091. We deal with trash. Just think about that for a minute. We deal with trash. Those men and women get up in the morning and they go out there and they deal with what you don't want in your home anymore. So we also deal with homeless encampments. These things we've been asking, the PPE, the, the personal protection equipment we've been asking the city for and the upgrade of the PPE for a while now and and, and haven't seen that happen. We work with out, outdated and unsafe vehicles, sanitation workers, are the unsung heroes. Just imagine, uh, I know people watch the news and you see the rat, the rats taking over New York City. Can you imagine if our sanitation workers wasn't doing their job properly, the rats would have been taking over D.C.? God knows. And and in these uh, homeless encampments, the things that we have to deal with, those men and women go out there and and they clean up feces. They clean up needles. They don't have the proper gear to do these things. And we've been asking the city this for a long time. Now that's on top of the pandemic. Can you imagine how stressful that is? Can you imagine having to come home Take your clothes off at the front door just so you can go in the house. That's the type of job these men and women have. I just think that we can do a whole lot better.
4: Among the deficiencies that leaders consistently point to are not enough N95 masks for workers sitting three or four in a cab, insufficient gloves and clothing protection, obsolete equipment and insufficient shelter, and adequate hygiene for those assigned to transfer and depot stations. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke.
0: And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
1: Now I'm going to hear from Jack Matlock, Jr., uh, who is a career diplomat. He was U.S. Ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1991. Before that, he was Senior Director for European and Soviet Affairs in President Reagan's National Security Council staff. Ambassador Matlock. Thank you very much. Thanks so much of what Uh, we're seeing today simply reflects, uh, I would say, almost a willful uh, determination not to learn from history because our policies now remind me very much of the policies of the European powers in 1914, competing over territory, the result of which, was catastrophic for all. Now, let's look at the various issues that arise here. President Putin has paid particular attention uh, to NATO expansion and saying that, well, there had been a promise. Um, actually, I think that NATO expansion was a bad decision whether or not there was a promise. And I think that's the basic plan because one can debate what was said, what was not said, what was put in writing, what was not. But the fact is that the way the expansion occurred I think was uh, uh, something which has contributed to the situation today. In 1997, October 1997, I was asked to testify before the US Senate uh, regarding the proposal uh, that we accept new members into NATO. And I'll read from the first paragraph of my statement. I consider the administration's recommendation to take new members into NATO at this time misguided. If it should be approved by the United States Senate, it may well go down in history as the most profound strategic blunder made since the end of the Cold War. Far from improving the security of the United States, its allies and the nations that wish to enter the alliance, it could well encourage a chain of events that could produce the most serious security threat to this nation since the Soviet Union collapsed. I think we are unfortunately, seeing that happen. But the first point I would make is it's not just NATO expansion. We mustn't forget that as from the late 90s, we started expanding NATO. Starting in the George W. Bush administration, we started withdrawing from the major arms control negotiations that had been negotiated by presidents of both parties, ratified uh, by uh, the Senate with support from both parties. We walked out of the ABM Treaty, which was the very basis of other arms control uh, treaties. uh, And uh, eventually, we began to walk out of others. Every one of these steps were not in the interest of the United States. Now let me go back to an earlier stage in my career. I was at the American Embassy in Moscow during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now what we're saying now is we have to, in effect, uh, try to prevent Russia from somehow interfering in its neighbor's uh, politics, and, uh, um, but. Let's not forget that Russia is a nuclear power. I was in Moscow during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I saw our reaction to Russia placing nuclear weapons in Cuba. Now, we talk a lot about international law, violation of international law. Let's think back. The Soviet Union did not violate international law in placing missiles on Cuba. After all, we had invaded, tried to invade Cuba at one point, uh, the whole Bay of Pigs, and had failed, and the Cuban government asked for them. How did we react? Of course we reacted. They have to be removed. And in fact, the Joint Chiefs, recommended that we bomb the sites. Fortunately, Kennedy decided on a different course. I was in Moscow when I translated some of the messages from Khrushchev to Kennedy. We in Moscow were totally confident that since we had complete control of the Caribbean, that we could take out those missiles any way we wanted to. But... You no, know, Kennedy came to an agreement. Part of it was secret, because the U.S. had actually stationed nuclear weapons in Turkey that could reach the Soviet Union. So the agreement was that the Soviet Union would remove its missiles from Cuba. The U.S. would guarantee that it would not invade Cuba again. And Though it was kept secret, um, Kennedy agreed that he would, in due course, remove the missiles from Turkey. That was an agreement which was not written, but it worked. And we have learned since how close we came to a nuclear exchange. If, in fact, Kennedy had followed the advice, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and bombed those missiles. We know, we've learned since, the commander in charge could have launched them. We could have lost Miami. And there was a very near escape uh, when a Russian submarine commander, we came very near uh, having a nuclear torpedo uh, fired at uh, at a destroyer, who knows what would have happened then Now, I recount this because at the time, I would say everybody involved on the American side, including those of us sitting in Moscow, thought it the only thing important was to get those missiles out, and whatever we did to do it would be permissible. Now, I think we have to remember that now. Neither side is going to launch uh, weapons purposely, but there are all sorts of things that can go wrong. And one of the things uh, with the way we're handling this issue now, it can initiate another nuclear arms race. You keep putting pressure on Russia by bringing forces close close to the borders of the former Soviet Union and what's going to be their reaction are they going to put nuclear missiles in Kaliningrad we ourselves walked out of the the INF the Intermediate uh, Missile Agreement I cannot imagine the rationale for doing this uh, Also, we have followed, uh, I would say, deployments of missiles, uh, particularly anti-ballistic missiles in Eastern Europe, which, with some change of the software, could be used against uh, Russia. We seem to have totally uh, forgotten how countries react to uh, what they consider such threats. Now, there are many other issues here, particularly the claim that somehow uh, they are the belligerent. Ukraine's problems are internal. And I find it ironic that we are asking the American people to somehow defend borders, which were created by Joseph Stalin because it was Stalin as recently as the end of the the Second World War that brought what had been Eastern Poland, that is, Galicia, uh, an area which had never been in Russia. It had been in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then Poland. And this was the center of, I would say, Ukrainian nationalism. When Ukraine became independent under the borders, most created by Stalin, and then the Crimea was added uh, by Khrushchev. One of the things that I think was not taken care of when the Soviet Union broke up was that in a number of these areas, not only Ukraine, there were minority areas which had been formally, though not always practically, but formally autonomous. Uh, the successor states tended to forget about that. And this is the problems in Georgia. Uh, this was the problem in Moldavia uh, with uh, Transnistria, and these other things you hear about. Uh, in effect, the new government began to discriminate against its own minorities. I could go on a long time about these problems, but let me get back to the basic one. And that is, if you look at the map and you know anything about history, the relationship of Russia to Ukraine and to Georgia for that matter, is one of long history of many very emotional issues, just as emotional as the U.S. desire to keep enemies out of the Caribbean or Central America or even South America. It is ironic for me that Americans who are smart, educated, one would think know some knowledge of history, would recognize that no country has been more determined to enforce a a sphere of influence in terms of keeping out potential enemies than the United States. Now, why we can't understand Putin's problem, I really don't know. He began explaining in Munich In what, 2007, I believe, what his problem was. And every one of the things he criticized were things the United States did not have to do. Now, I'm not a defender in the way he rules his country, but I would say that things like the sanctions we're doing are not achieving any end. Basically, you can't use economic sanctions to bring about Solutions that seem to the other side to affect their security. Millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute, was one of the slogans back, it goes back to the beginning of our history of the United States. And no country has been more determined than the United States, whether it is consistent with international law or not. And those who call Russia belligerent, I would say, look, the United States illegally invaded Iraq. Who are we to put ourselves up as those who should be enforcing rules that we ourselves violate when we feel we need to? All right. We are where we are. And if the present negotiations lead to an understanding and uh, that will comfort uh, the Russian leadership that there will be no further, uh, say, military pressure on countries that are immediately close to them. I would remind uh, people that Russia accepted. Uh, Russia accepted the independence of the three Baltic states. They've always been considered separate from the others. And they're not bringing any military pressure to bear against them today. But and while we talk about nuclear weapons, we also should remember that Russia and perhaps other countries have undoubtedly capabilities for cyber warfare or all sorts of it might say, intermediate things for which it is very difficult to defend. And a final point. The most serious dangers we face cannot be solved if we try to divide up the world between enemies and friends. We're facing a continual pandemic, and none of our governments are doing a very good job of dealing with it. If you add to that pressures of some, usually not governments, but others, to get involved in biological warfare, we're going to be much off. We're facing climate change that can be catastrophic. We are facing some of the most difficult movements of population because of failed states. And I would say, parenthetically, that Ukraine is very close to a failed state when you really look at what's going on internally. We really have to stop this sort of maneuvering that brought two world wars in the 20th century. And I think that we did have in the 90s a chance to create a Europe whole and free by leading them into a security arrangement that includes Russia. That is the task today, and if the current negotiations lead to something like that, I would be encouraged. Uh, But there are real dangers in the way that we're carrying it out, and I think it's high time uh, we began to pull back to spend a good bit more time dealing with our internal problems, which are serious. And I think we must not ignore the influence of what I would call the military-industrial-congressional complex. The current administration is actually increasing the defense budget. They approve more than even the Defense Department asks for. We are still involved in country after country, including in Syria, where we were trying to overthrow a government we recognized. You know, I really feel that it's time to wake up, but as Katrina has noted, unfortunately we have the leadership of both of our political parties that seem to ignore these lessons of the past. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Ambassador Matlock.
5: Can't hold me down, there's no gravity in my universe Those rules don't exist to me, you don't believe me, you can search Feeling bittersweet, now it's cavities in your tooth that hurts Cause it doesn't work when you're grabbing me, trying to pull me down the earth backstabbing me as I root my work If you biting my style, then who was first? If you biting my dust, then who was first? Geek down, trying to act wild, don't make it worse I speak the truth when I spit, call it a naked verse Saint John, when I spit, let me take you to church huh. Amen, amen, trying to intimidate me, and you Think just amen, and you dealing down. with an ill super sand, down. with a wide vision in the game plan, call that full brain, Dry Illa J, see that's my full name, Grey Bonds down. on steroids, that's my full slang, and I'm my ghetto superstar, spit stupid boss, uh, yeah. Think it
0: This is On the Ground, ground org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, in the past week, President Biden put 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened alert to be deployed to NATO allies in Eastern Europe, announced the sending of 3,000 additional troops, increased the flow of even more lethal weapons into Ukraine. Meanwhile, corporate Democrats in Congress are proposing to rush $500 million more for this buildup to war. And the U.S. and NATO basically responded in the negative to Russia's written demands that Ukraine, with which it shares a 1,200-mile border, not be admitted to the NATO military alliance. Here to help us unpack this increasingly dangerous moment for the United States, the people of Ukraine, Russia, and the world is John Jeter, former foreign bureau chief for The Washington Post and author of Flat Broken the Free Market, How Globalization Flees Working People. Welcome back to the show, John.
2: Always a pleasure, Esther.
0: Well, I know that you've been uh, watching and I'm really interested to hear your observations about how media has been covering this rush to war, this certain escalation toward war by the United States and the UK primarily.
2: The English media uh, is mostly CNN And I've been watching it kind of closely because, of course, this issue is insane, right? And particularly the media's handling of it, right? The reportage is so one-sided. And this is something, of course, that we have talked about forever, Esther, but the decontextualization of the story, right? They don't add context. They remove context. It reminds me of the famous case of Rodney King, who, of course, was beaten by the LAPD and it was caught on camera back in 1991. And the defense won that trial, the initial trial. Uh, they lost the second trial. But the initial trial, they won because they would freeze the frame. So that, And every time they would freeze the frame, they would say to the jury, do you see police abuse or excessive force being used here? And, of course, in that one frame, you don't. Because what they've done is they've decontextualized it. Our media is doing the same thing with this story, right? They're freezing the frame, right? And so what they don't tell you, for instance, is... You know, Russia has assembled 100,000 troops on its own territory, right? What in the world business is that of ours, right? They don't tell you that the United States installed what was at least a an avowed neo-Nazi government to replace, to topple a democratically elected government. They installed a neo-Nazi government through violence, right? We have the tapes of the Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland doing this during the Obama administration. And they don't tell you that when Bill Clinton was president, they promised Russia that, that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. James Baker served under Bush, but I think Clinton reiterated those claims. Cl- Clinton made the same claims because they always, the Russians always referred to Clinton making those promises to them. Media Um, never mentioned sort of the militarization of our relationship with Russia since the end of the Cold War, right? We have remilitarized our relationship, which is part of our global strategy, the United States global strategy, right? To essentially take what they can no longer afford to buy because China is outbidding us for all of these natural resources. And the centerpiece, this again, this is one of those things they never mentioned. The centerpiece of this It's the Obama administration's invasion, toppling of of Libya, uh, the most prosperous country in Africa, right? Led by Muammar Gaddafi, who was a pan-Africanist and very much beloved on the African continent. And you have to understand what happened there. This was in 2011, I think, when they went in. This was during the Great Recession. And the banks wanted to get their hands on the gold reserves and the oil that Libya had access to right? They were insolvent, many of them, right? And they went in under the cover of this United Nations no-fly zone, uh, which Russia agreed to, and then they used that to basically topple the Libyan government. Russia sees the writing on the wall, and that's why they're assembling these troops on the Ukrainian border. They understand the United States endgame, right? I'm not particularly a fan of Putin. I don't think he is the answer or that he is any kind of savior, you know, the Uh, Developing countries, both in Africa and Latin America, will tell you that the Soviet Union had a checkered history in their support, in their allyship, if you will, of the developing world during the Cold War, right? They They weren't always in it to win it when it came to these developing countries. Having said that, though, the United States has always and continues to be the aggressor in these things. Russia, for all of its flaws, right, has not been an imperialist nation, right? Even during the height of the Cold War. During the height of the Soviet Union, the money flowed one way from Moscow to its territories. And so we need to understand this, right? Like this is a war that we should have no truck with. The American people should have no truck with. This is not about us, right? Russia has not uh, aggrieved us in any way. And we have no business expanding NATO, which, by the way, what reason does NATO exist today, right? We created NATO after the Cold War to keep Germany down and keep Russia at arm's length, right? So Russia is now a capitalist state. Germany is unified. For what reason does NATO even exist? And these are the things, part of the narrative that you will never hear in the mainstream media, and they're taking us closer to war. I I happen to think because the idea of going to war with Russia is insane, right? You can't win a war with Russia with a volunteer army. You would have to reinstall the draft. So I I happen to think that there won't be war with Russia. Right. But this is we're getting dangerously close. Right. We're we're tempting fate here. And really, you know, a reckoning is due, particularly for the United States media, which is leading the bandwagon on this is insane.
0: Right. So I want to play a clip from CNN on uh, Sunday, January 30th, and just catch a bit of Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey talking about sanctions and uh, military buildup against Russia and the kind of language he uses to basically threaten uh, the Russian people.
2: There are uh, some sanctions that really could take place uh, up front because of what Russia's already done. But then the devastating sanctions that ultimately would crush Russia's economy and the continuing lethal aid that we are going to send, which means Putin has to decide how many body bags of Russian sons sons are going to return to Russia. Uh, You know, the sanctions that we're talking about would come later on if he invades. Some sanctions would come up front for what has been done already, but the lethal aid will travel no matter what.
0: So there you have uh, a leading uh, Democrat, Bob Menendez, who's had his own legal problems. Um, but in any case, this Menendez, the same person that uh, is rah-rah to keep uh, sanctions, uh, illegal sanctions and embargo against Cuba, is you know leading the charge to put sanctions on Russia that would hurt the Russian people. And then he has the nerve to talk yeah. about body bags. I mean, I can't imagine what would happen if a high Russian official was talking about Americans coming home in body bags.
2: Right. And if you listen to the press conferences and the remarks by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and then Russia's counterpart, uh, is it Lavrov, right? I mean, one is an adult and one is a child. One is speaking the language of diplomacy and statecraft. And the other, Blinken, just like Menendez, is speaking the language of children on a playground. Right, the sort of belligerence. What, what would be the point, right? We have a pandemic in which we lead the world in COVID deaths, right? We only have five percent of the population. We have twenty percent of all deaths, right? We have an economy in which we're seeing spikes and in inflation, and we have issues with the Federal Reserve printing money for corporations and banks. I just, I'm always thinking when I listen to these politicians. Many of them Democrats, right? And that should be noted. Rattling the saber against Russia. I keep thinking of Muhammad Ali's famous admonition. The Vietnamese, they never called me the N-word. The Russians ain't called us the N-word, right? The Russians aren't responsible for the malaise, the discontent, the the sort of approaching disaster that's bearing down on the United States economy. Why are we rattling our saber? It's a distraction from those issues that are really, we had another shooting yesterday, uh, in, uh, Minnesota, it might have been. You know, we're seeing this country come apart and we're talking about what Russia's doing on its own territory. It's insanity. You
0: know, there's a lot of the history that you were talking about. There's a lot more history that Americans really don't know about Russia and Ukraine, uh, the historic ties between Russia and Ukraine at some point. You That's know, right. Kiev That's was right. actually the, the capital of Russia. So, you know, the at the beginning of this ratcheting up to war, they would say, you know, is Russia going <laughs> to invade Ukraine again. <laughs> and so right, it's almost right, like when will you right. stop beating your wife because uh, there was right, right, there was right. no first invasion. There was a vote taken by the people in right. Crimea who are ethnically Russian, that they wanted to stay a part of Russia as opposed to be a part of this increasingly right-wing government in Ukraine that was very anti-Russian, that was filled with Nazis. And so that was a vote taken by people in Crimea. And and that vote has never been recognized. And it's it's very important for people to understand that Russia's most important naval base is In Crimea. Right. And so there was no way that that they were going to let this Western backed Nazi government in Ukraine take over its most strategic military asset on the Black Sea. And turn it over to NATO, which means turn it over to the U.S. and have the U.S. right there on its doorstep, which is what the U.S. is trying to do now. But the other interesting thing, because we're talking about 2014 when there was this U.S.-backed coup, when Victoria Nuland was on the Maidan with Senator John McCain giving out cookies, (laughs) right? and. When you talk about people like Anthony Blinken, I'm always reminded because I always I, I use that that analogy of the playground often on the show, because the attitudes that you're talking about, you're spot on is the kind of things that we all learned on the schoolyard about or the, what I call That's the right. playground, because we learn about the bully. We learn about who is our friends. We learn about how to maneuver how to be. We learn how to be. We learn how to be fair. We learn that if you're kind of a modern parent, like say post nineties when you had to right, you know right, teach right. children what is their safe space <laughs> right and I always remember this movie War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise, and he has a daughter. Who has anxiety. And so she has to be kind of trained to, like, you know, wrap herself in her arms and in her safe space. And her brother encourages her to feel safe when she's, you know, wrapping herself in her arms. And the thing is, we don't want to recognize that Russia has a right to its safe space, just like we insisted on having a safe space during the Cuban Missile Crisis when the Soviet Union installed defensive missiles. For Cuba because the United States had already invaded through the Bay of Pigs and was threatening Cuba with with another invasion or with some type of additional military assault. And so they actually had a right. They actually had a legal right to have defensive weapons, but we were willing to blow up the whole world to get those missiles out of there. And so, and earlier in the show, we heard ambassador uh, matlock who was working in the soviet union at that time uh later he was ambassador to the soviet union in eight, 1987 to 1991 and he just reminded everybody of this analogy and and gerald horn has uh, has also reminded us on the show in recent weeks and he he pointed out that if Kennedy had taken the advice of his joint chiefs of staff, which was to bomb those silos, that Cuba had the, right. the ability to actually launch yeah. them. Right. And he said, we could have lost Miami. And so it's just important for the Americans not to be led down this road as we were led in Iraq with this kind of ahistorical beating of the drum, because there's no way that Russia is going to allow offensive weapons right on their border, which is what their demand was, that NATO not be made a member of NATO and that you continue to have this buildup of weapons right on its border that we've been uh, creating ever since um, the the 90s. So anyway, John, we have to go to a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with our media critic, John Jeter. And John, before the break, we were deep into this conversation about Ukraine. And there was just one thing that I forgot to mention. And, And when we talk about what's not covered and no context, I think it was a convenient omission this week not to play the exchange at the United Nations between the United States ambassador to the United Nations and Russia, because basically uh, Russia got to say its peace, you know, in an international forum. We're we we talk about
2: this a lot, Esther, but it here. really comes down to, and uh, Toni Morrison used to say this all the time, right? Their power lays in their ability to narrate the world. And so what they leave out becomes part of their narrative, which accomplishes the goals that they want to accomplish, right? So we don't hear, you know, during Barack Obama's administration, the United States, under you know, uh, in combination with NATO, of course— assembled more weapons, accumulated more weapons on the border of Russia, on Russia's border, than at any time since the Third Reich, right? I mean, this is not tit for tat. This is not Russian aggression. This is United States imperialism.
0: Right. And, you know, I know we want to move on, but when you were talking about the playground earlier, I wanted to remind Uh, Listeners that some of these same people who are in the Biden White House, in the State Department, in his administration, these are some of the same people who were involved in engineering that coup and setting up the situation we have right now. And they did not take into account what Russia's response would be. They were, in a way, uh, outsmarted by Putin. He said, no, no, you are not taking Crimea. I'm not losing my naval base to NATO and the U.S. right here inside my country, basically, right? And it's almost like when you hear a Blinken, who you sounding like a child as opposed to a diplomat, it's almost like that same attitude. Yes. like of someone who was outsmarted a decade ago and they're like, okay, well, we're going to get you right. back now, right. but we're talking about nuclear weapons and we're talking about two nuclear powers. This shouldn't be about tit for tat or uh, these type yeah. of playground just, games. Or I know we want to move
2: on. Let me just say this really quick. After, I know we want to, um, I, cause I think it's so important, right? Like, like, I'm not sure that I, I see Putin as any kind of role model. Right. But you have to respect this man and just think about it. Right. He, has been planning for this. He's been preparing for this aggression by the United States for more than a decade, right? But not just that. Think about what happened to Russia, right, when the Berlin Wall fell 30 years ago. Who recognizes when an empire falls, collapses better than Vladimir Putin? He knows exactly what's happened to the United States, and he's preparing for that because he recognizes so I just think that's important to remember, right? This is he's playing chess, the United States is playing checkers.
0: So I know we want to move on to Syria. On Thursday there was a, a raid by a US Special Operations Force that resulted in the death of a man described as the leader of ISIS, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Karashi. And this is in Syria. And the media reported it just as the Pentagon reported it, that al-Karashi committed suicide, uh, used a suicide vest to kill himself, blow himself up along with his family uh some reports in alternative media mentioned that there were at least six children killed that there were body parts uh scattered all around this place and because there had been two or three other exposés in the New York Times recently that sh- showed how the new that the Pentagon lied in previous uh reports of when it went into Syria and and bombed i just thought it was worth mentioning that we may find out you know, at another time in the future that this didn't happen the way it happened. Uh, That I just, I'm just saying that with these two reports, the most recent one was uh, exposed how the U S had actually bombed a dam that was on a do not bomb list. And that if the bomb had exploded, it turned out to be a dud. This dam could have failed. And there could have been tens of thousands of people could have been uh, killed um, as this dam failed and that there was actually an emergency working together of Russians, ISIS, Americans, and everybody, Assyrians, who are are not on the same side in this so-called war, uh, to basically come together to repair this dam on an emergency basis to keep tens of thousands of people from being killed. So Uh, With that and and an earlier and a massacre reported earlier in recent weeks by The Times in Syria, it just reminds us that the United States is in Syria illegally. We are still occupying long after our effort to topple uh, Bashar al-Assad failed and that he maintains power. The uh, we're still in the country, causing misery and and death in Syria. That we are occupying either a quarter or a That's third right. of the most stealing fertile the oil. oil-rich right. land, stealing the oil, according to some accounts, and keeping the Syrian people from feeding themselves with their own resources and land. And this is just you know added to this saber rattling in Ukraine. I mean, what are we doing? Can't get bill Back Better passed. They want to means test, the child tax credit it's, to help families. It's just, right, but they are looking at sending millions more to Ukraine and giving more to the Pentagon we, they, than we they asked for.
2: for. We got money for war, but can't feed the poor, as Tupac said. You know, and it's, it's, it's a reflection of what the Africans call the last kicks of a dying meal. That's, what, that's what's going on now. The United States is desperate to Hold on to its power and its material wealth, and yet it generates. We make nothing of value, so everything we get is well, almost everything we get is because we we steal it before the Chinese can buy it. And this permanent war is how they make their money now, right? Permanent war in housing, right, which drives up the price of housing. They don't really have any other ways of making money, uh, and so you know we see the United States resorting to increasingly, although we've always done these things actually, but they're resorting increasingly to these desperate measures.
0: We have totally run out of time, but we're going to do part two and put it on our Patreon page with John Jeter for this month. So please go check it out there. But that's it for today's show. I want to thank our media critic, John Jeter. I also want to thank Thomas O'Rourke and Ford Fisher for their contributions to today's show. This is on the ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. At our website, on the You can check out this and all of our current and past shows. Contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at On the Ground Show. You can follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore averum. That's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I B like Victor E-R-E-M. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Iverum, and you can subscribe on all of your podcast platforms. Our podcasts, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included A Picture of Doris Traveling with Boris by EST, the Esports-Svenson Trio, Malcolm's Theme by Kamasi Washington, They Can't Hold Me Down by Robert Glasper and Miles Davis, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. is a totally listener sponsored supported show if you have not already subscribed at patreon you can do so for as little as three dollars a month or all at once at 33 dollars for the whole year and i know that the show is worth more than that to you if you like the show if you love the show if you regularly check it out if you rely on it if you know it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way please support, go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon p a t r e o n.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway. If you reach the blog that way, and you click on the donate now button, or the, um, Support, donate button, and you can see all ways to give.